Making It Plain, a podcast dedicated to discussing real issues that impact Black communities, Black families, and Black women. Your host, Dr. Key, is dedicated to discussing Black issues in a way everyone can relate. Welcome to Making It Plain podcast. I am your host, Dr. Key. In this episode of Making It Plain, we are discussing Black women hair with Dr. Shante Tarber, Assistant Professor, Researcher, and Guru of Understanding Black Women. Welcome, Dr. Tarber. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you discussed your journey to locking your hair as a spiritual one. And Black women have had a long history, a history many don't understand. So today we're going to dig into the topic of Black women hair and discuss why women are so passionate about their hair. And maybe why even uh, why other people are passionate about trying to touch Black women's hair, right? I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's begin with you, because I, I like the way you tell your story, and I would love for our audience to hear more about your story. So you can, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to locking your hair? Absolutely, absolutely. I think my journey to locking my hair started um, at the beginning of 2006. Um, it started off with me making the decision to go natural. I had gone to um, an Urbana missions conference. And so I'm not sure if you're familiar with Urbana, but InterVarsity is a Christian fellowship that um, is housed on campuses across the nation and globally, actually. And they hold a missions conference every three years. So um, I had a lot of friends that worked for InterVarsity and was often invited to attend the missions conference as a guest. And so one year I was um, at Urbana 06. And um, during this conference, it started raising a lot of cultural questions um, for me that I began to pray about and ask God about because I was just like, now why is this happening? So for example, my friend who had invited me worked for like the assistant director. So she was always going to these like really big events, not really with the students who are at the conference, but with the donors who were giving to InterVarsity. So in most of those spaces, I was one of few because they were mostly white spaces. And so um, one particular time I'd gone to a dinner and I'd sat at this table and I, I was gravitated toward the table because there were Black men at the table. And I'm just like, Black people! Because it was rare that I saw Black people in the spaces that I were in, was in at the conference. But I could also tell as I went over that the men had to be from Africa because of the hue of their skin. It was, it was very deep, deep, deep um, chocolate almost like a purplish tint to it. So I would have assumed um, that they were from Africa and I didn't know what country in Africa, but anyways, so we were like sitting at this table talking and I had two um, white women at this table as well. And one of them said to me, oh, these are the lost boys of Sudan. And I was offended because all of these were men. And I'm like, who, first of all, why is she talking for them? And second of all, why does she call them boys? So I was like, oh my gosh. So anyways, I was sitting next to one of them and his name was Abraham. He introduced himself as Abraham. And as he began to tell me what that meant, contextualize the fact that he was from the Sudan in Africa, where um, their village had been burned through civil war. And so even when they were young boys, they were out in the fields and they had to go back to the village, but the village was being burnt. Like their, their parents were killed. They couldn't go back. And so they traveled together in bands until they got to refugee camps. And so the only way they could even be in the U.S. was that different missions organizations or faith-based organizations sponsored for them to come to the U.S., right? So I'm like, this is fascinating. But I was equally troubled at the fact that his name was Abraham. I'd never been to the Sudan, but I couldn't imagine that that was a Sudanese name. And the other men were like, Isaac, Jacob, Elijah. I'm like, now, wait a minute. Lord, I'm so grateful that they're here and that you got them out of this situation, but why did they have to change their names? And so um, I began to ask God all these questions, like why in the name of conversion did it appear that people had to strip who they were? And it led me on this whole journey, um, separating, not really separating, but differentiating aspects of my cultural self from my Christian self. And, and at the end of that journey, I began to understand that despite the fact that 
horrible things have been done in the name of Christianity. That was never God's will. And so I began to self-reflect having all those experiences. I mean, it was just so many more things that I can't even cover in this podcast, but I asked myself, what was the, what things that I, what was I created with that I didn't appreciate, that I did not value, that I felt less than. And for me, it was my hair. I didn't appreciate my natural hair texture at the time. I was chemically processing it. I had a perm all the time. So much so that if I couldn't afford to get a perm, I would do it myself. And there had had times in my life where that didn't go so well, i.e. my hair fell out. (laughs) So it was very serious for me. And so realizing that to be the thing that God created that I did not appreciate or value, I asked God to help me with it helped me to appreciate it. And that's when my journey started. I started transitioning from the perm. I let the perm grow out. Um, there are styles that you have to, uh, that you can go through to kind of either make it all curly or make it all straight. And so there were a number of adventures with that. Um, and, and then eventually once I got to a place where it's like, okay, we can do this. Um, I, I did what's called the big chop where I cut all the rest of the perm out. It was probably about half the length. And um, there were no places where I lived in Madison, Wisconsin at the time that did natural hair. So I had to go to a barbershop to get my hair just cut. And and they were like, oh, you want to fade it down? I'm like, no, not like a man. I just want to fro. And so even for the, the Black barbers there, it wasn't even like a space that they were always asked to do this. So it was even an adventure for them. But I got the perm cut out. And, and I rocked that, but I rocked it privately. So I found a community of Black women that supported me, taught me projects. I mean, not projects, but products that I could use to like enhance the texture, to value the texture, to moisturize the texture. And then I also learned how to cover it up because everybody wasn't supportive. So whenever I would go into spaces where people didn't value my um, hair texture, I would get braids or I would get what's, what was called kinky twist. That was my go-to. So where we would, was added in those styles. And so you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell that my hair was natural and things of that nature. And I, at the time, I remember dating a guy who was really not about natural hair. In fact, the, the whole Southern Belle mentality was like, um, either your hair is neat and perm or it's nappy. And so I just never exposed that to him. And I thought, I think it was maybe about eight months to a year before he even found out that I had cut my hair. And so um, it, that those spaces, um, the community that that, that was in, um, some family members even said, you know what, why are you letting yourself go, right? And so I just learned how to negotiate these two worlds, the supportive community where I live. And then whenever I travel, I will have my hair in a different style where people couldn't tell. And I did that for a while until probably um, right before I went to graduate school, the February before I went to graduate school, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to not only embrace myself because I'd gotten to that part, but encourage others to do the same. So you either love me or hate me. You either accept me or you don't. And so um, based on that, I decided, A, I'm never going to perm my hair again. And a way that I could ensure that I wasn't going to chemically treat it was that I would lock it. It was my commitment to myself to never go back to chemically processing my hair. So I locked my hair in February, uh, on February 23rd, 2006. And I've been locked ever since. Great story. So listen, how did this journey connect you more to your heritage or how do you feel it, it mm-hmm. what the relationship was with your heritage and, and locking your hair? You know, it's interesting because when I think about my heritage, like I, I was in school, let me just say that, uh, even though it was before I started graduate school, I had a girlfriend that was really central to my process and she was in graduate school. So when I was starting it, I did a lot of research. <laughs> I read books about like historical origins of black hair that took us from like Africa all the way to current day. Um, And I was in different spaces, like I mentioned. So um, the way that it connected for me hair wise was a, I had to learn to love myself. 
I had internalized all of the messages, whether they were implicit messages that came from sitting down when I was getting my hair pressed as a little girl. Uh, I remember flinching because grease popped and it was like, well, you shouldn't have got, you shouldn't have played. Your hair shouldn't be so nappy. Um, Or the explicit messages of people who had good hair and my hair not being good hair because my curl pattern was tight. I had to learn to look in the mirror and and love what I saw. And that, that was not easy. I remember going, especially after I cut my hair, I had to look in the mirror and play around with like, okay, what makes me feel feminine? Because it didn't, it wasn't what I taught was taught the book of femininity was my mother. Who's a beautiful woman always loved short hair. And so she could rock short hair. Her bone structure is different than mine. She's more of a petite woman than I am. So I didn't even see my mother when I looked in the mirror. Um, so it worked for my mom, but it was hard for me to believe that it was working for me. Um, so I always wore earrings. I always wore makeup during those early stages and tried to play around with accessories, all those things to learning to appreciate and starting to feel beautiful. Like mm-hmm. for a long time, it did not feel beautiful. It felt like, what have I done to mm-hmm. myself? <laughs> and really literally getting into spaces where people would affirm that this is still beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the messages between the supportive communities and the unsupportive communities were drastic. Mm-hmm. People in the unsupportive communities was like, do you even want to get married? Like, cause you know, no man going to date you with your head looking like this and just mm-hmm. really differentiating my own esteem from what people said others thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was very difficult. That was probably one of the hardest mm-hmm. things about my journey, about my hair, but it was like an unlearning because my parents never taught me that. My parents never taught me that I had to have straight hair in order to be beautiful. In fact, my father was adamantly against me getting curls and perms when I was younger, but I was just like, no, I need this. <laughs> like, this is what's going to help me fit in. This is what's going to connect me and my peers. And I mean, after a lot of pulling and prodding, he agreed. But I had to learn and discover anew the beauty that he saw because I never saw it. Mm. I think that's very powerful. And I think that a lot of women go through that. I can remember the reason why I wanted a perm and begging and begging and begging my mom to to let me get this perm. And um, she didn't want me to have it. She was totally against it. But both of my cousins, whom I was close to, had gotten perms. And so that was the reason why I wanted the perm. It was no other reason. It was the fact that my cousins got it. But then once you get the perm, um, like you said, that beauty and everything is tied to our hair. That's right. I have a question for you. Have you watched the new Madam C.J. Walker's? I have. I have. It was good. And so in the time of Madam C.J. Walker, she was quoted in discussing how Black women's employment was tied to um, appearance. And if you saw the series, um, and I hope our audience has saw it, you will see how evident that is throughout the series. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, certain positions was not meant for Black women that was not put together, so to speak, and put mm-hmm. together during that time, which was right after slavery and, and people became free, put together was Typically, um, women who were um, mulattoes, who had like the nice wavy or the straight hair or basically very close to being white women. And so the people who had the kinky hair, who worked in the fields and stuff, would Mm -hmm. normally not be in positions that these um, mulatto women were in. Um, And she talked about that. Some of the language she used was being put together. And so how she was able to sell her products basically was to um, talk to this population of black women and say, you know, these products will help you get better positions because now you can have a focus on your hair. Um, So I would argue that appearance is so important to women today because it has been instilled in us that we must look a certain way. Absolutely way generations before us, right? Um, My mother would say, you are never going outside with your hair wrapped, right? And Mm -hmm. now people are wearing hair wraps all the time. But for her, she had a serious 
problem and still yeah. sort of has a problem mm-hmm. with head wraps because she's just that's not how she was raised. Um, so what are your views on the notion of hair being a determining factor for employment? Yeah, because I think it still happens today. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Let me just say when I made the decision to lock my hair, I was I knew that I was training to get a PhD. And I knew that the academy was a safer place for me to wear locks. Okay. And so that was something because part of my research, right, was really looking at those generational transmissions about messages of hair. Um, I think that it's so deeply ingrained into American culture that success equals whiteness, that every element of our being that can be transformed is expected to transform, right? So our hair was is one of the key symbols that historically, even in Africa, it had meaning beyond beauty. It was beyond representation. That was how tribes understood who was who. That was how the status within certain tribes was maintained. So you could look at somebody's hair, their braid pattern, and say, oh, well, that's princess so-and-so, or may, they may be in a royalty line, or, oh, no, that, that style right there is with this particular tribe. And one of the first things that was done to us during enslavement was the cutting of the hair. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time we, we look at the historical transmission of, of becoming American and we hear the language was beat out of us, the uh, patterns, the customs, but also the hair and how we coped with that was to be creative and find ways to make our hair either invisible, i.e. the wraps, or assimilate, i.e. straightening. And even then, it was a lot of trauma related to burning your hair out and making it very traumatic for us. But I don't even think we can, you know, point the finger at our parents because, again, those things are genera- generational and there's still um, things within the system that even merit the assimilation of our hair. So one person said to me, a a colleague of mine who was in administration said, I am safer, right? When people look at me, they see me as a safe Black woman. When they look at you, they see locks and that's threatening. So I think even in terms of employment, there are so many um, types of employment that we are challenged by, Um, occupying with natural hair. And I'm saying natural hair because it doesn't even have to be locked. If it's not conforming where I'm chemically or or heat processing my hair to be straight, people don't know what to do with that. They see it as a sign of non-conformity. So if they're not going to conform in their appearance, what else are they going to rebel against, right? Mm -hmm. And so as it relates to employment, it's so incredibly ingrained that even other Black people will espouse it and try to correct it. Right. So if I was to allow my hair even grow into a fro, okay, at the job interview, you better not rock that fro because you don't know who's sitting at the table or in um, the workplace. If you're going to a meeting with higher ups, you might want to pull it back because they're not going to know how to interpret the messages that they get from your hair. So I think that as it relates to um, employment, it's really seen as Uh, a read on if you will confirm with the status quo or if you're going to be that type of person that that creates waves and challenge biases and things of that nature. And your hair tells us that without us even having to ask you. Wow. That's powerful. So basically your hairstyle speaks to your character and who you are and how you will act and how you, what they can expect from you. That is so powerful because it's so not true. Right. Mm. Um, And it's interesting because um, I recently took a trip to Ghana and one of the things I immediately saw, um, which is one of the things that I see all the time, like when I go to Jamaica, I see, you know, children in uniforms, right? When they go mm-hmm. to school, they're in uniforms. But the one thing that I saw in Ghana is not just that they were in uniforms, that all of their hair had been cut off and they all wore, all the girls 
wore mini froze, right? Mm. And I saw that everywhere I went. And so I had to ask the question, why is that so? Mm-hmm. And they went back into how many of the schools um, that were built in Ghana were um, religious institutions, mm-hmm. right? And these are some of the practices that came out of those institutions was, again, stripping them of their culture by making them cut their hair, mm-hmm. right? And everyone had to look the same. But I, I looked in the faces of these little girls and I just did not see happiness mm-hmm. in their faces. Um, and it's just really interesting how in order to be uniformed, right? Um, your hair has to be cut to be uniform. Now I can understand wearing the uniforms because, you know, you have different economic statuses and things like that. And having a uniform makes sure that everyone is covered and have clothing. But the hair really has nothing to do with that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just did, I didn't dig into it a lot. I just asked some people their opinions of it. And that was one of the responses that I received. Um, and I think it, it may be more to it, but it's just interesting how in Africa, current day, I just went in December, that these little girls are going, and they were like seven and eight, you know, little girls are going to school and they had to cut all their hair off to go. Yeah. I think the sadder part too is like if the standard of beauty had been or would be um, women who had these short froze, then the then there would be an esteem around it. But the images that we get within the U.S. of long flowing hair as the standard of beauty is perpetuated throughout the globe. Mm -hmm. I I was was, um, taken aback even on recent trips out of the country where people talked about how much they keep up with the current, not just politics, but the current trends in the U.S., Right. Mm-hmm. So if everybody's looking to the U.S., then this stands to reason that the same socialization that is out there for models, right, to look a certain way, to present a certain way that per- that is perpetuated throughout the society is also being perpetuated throughout the globe. And I think that even if the standard of being uniform was really about just hair, then the models need to reflect that so that there's a steam around it. But now you are kept out of, right, this um, entree into beauty because you're not even allowed to grow your hair. And I think that sometimes we don't look at institutional policies and practices um, in terms of their origins. And I'm so grateful to, to know that my, my, journey started, right? With looking at how exploitation has been transmitted through Christianity. But then there was also a reclaiming during that time um, for those who are Christian to say, look, this has happened to us, but we recognize this is not God's will. This is like total opposite of God. And so now we're going to reclaim it on our own terms. I met this group, this worship group called Broken Walls, and they were an indigenous um, worship group. And they came out and worshiped God with full feathers, with full drums, as one would perhaps characterize indigenous groups. And they talked about how they were reclaiming it. And so even with that, I think black hair has to be reclaimed. And even when that happens, it may not all look the same. Right. Mm-hmm. So what I've also spoken with a number of students about is the reclaiming, but it doesn't have to look always a big fro. Right. right. So, right. yes, we love we appreciate our texture, but we do straighten our hair sometimes because we want the length to, to be evident, because that's the other thing. Right. The it's not that we hate our curls is that our curls don't present the length. The true length of the hair, yes. right? And so, if you're going to have length, then then there's you has to be some kind of chemical or heat treatment to the hair if you have tight curls. So I think that all of those things are are really something that we have to look into and reclaim and resituate ourselves. Yeah, around. Now, one of the big things that has been impacting Black women more recently is this um, hair loss. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I began having hair loss in my early 30s. And um, 
I remember as a young girl seeing my aunts on my father's side and wondering why are, why their hairline is so far back, right? Mm. Um, I didn't understand because I was a young girl, right? And those were my aunts. Um, but my dermatologist at the time really assisted me in growing and maintaining my hair. Um, and so I, I received like treatments and shots and stuff to help my hair grow. Um, and, and it lasted for maybe another five years mm-hmm. um, with these treatments. Um, but the stress of my career getting into um, academia full time um, sent me into hair loss again, right? Mm-hmm. The same spots, same areas. And I was told that the cells now were damaged um, and it was hereditary and I would not be able to grow hair in those spots. They did a biopsy. I'm going to say, you know, uh, now that the cells are damaged, it can't, it can't be done again. And so hair loss impacted my, my self-esteem um, immediately um, because, you know, so much is tied to hair. Growing up, I was, um, I had long hair. Me and my, my cousins that I grew up, we all had long hair. Um, and I never had wore anything but my hair. Right. Mm-hmm. So now I am like 37 years old and um, I had n- never, ever done anything with my hair, but my hair. Right. No mm-hmm. one has ever seen me with um, weave or wigs or any of those different things. And I had to take a new journey because um, I had significant loss in my hair mm-hmm. and there was nothing else that I could do about that. And I think um, I didn't spend a lot of time in the process of um, having low self-esteem because I immediately started to play with hair because it was so much hair out there. And so I could try new styles and I can do all these different cool things. And then I sort of just got excited about being able to do all these different things. I can go kinky. I can go straight. I can go Mm -hmm. curly. I can go long. I can go short and I can switch it up. And so that helped me to be more comfortable with the hair loss. But, um, you know, it is hard for many women, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And many women go into what I would say mental health crisis Mm -hmm. based on this this hair loss. And so Representative Ayanna Presley recently came out. She posted a video and told people about her battle with alopecia and hair loss. And um, she talked about how she just was tired of wearing all these wigs and just covering her up herself up and she just wanted to be herself right and there are many others that are dealing with the same thing so why is it important for black women to have support during this time uh, of, of going through this hair journey um and, and your views why is it so tied to our mental health mm, that is amazing um i'm Thank you for sharing your your story as well. I mean, I think that it, it always is going to be a process for us because some of the, the messages that we get, we are not even aware of them. But when we have this moment in time where there's a hair loss or a transition, it's just like, okay, this is a bigger thing then I realized that it was. I think it's essential for a Black woman to have support around their hair to help them to get through the journey safely. Because it is something that is so significantly tied with our mental health. I mean, on the surface, it might be about do we perceive ourselves as beautiful or not, but it's also connected to confidence. It's also connected to um, how we represent our abilities. Um, I think that it's important to to connect those things because otherwise we'll just keep it moving. We'll like, you know, get through the transition and keep it moving without unpacking the assault on our 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 thought processes. So I think whether that's in the professional space or in a community space or a combination, I think it's essential that we have support. When you think about one's mental health, yes, it may be connected to self-esteem, but it but from that foundation of self-esteem, everything else 
is impacted by that. It's almost as if, you know, just because my arm is has been severed, I can't just keep it moving without recognizing that that impacts the blood flow to everything else. Um, that that if there's something infected there, then that's going to infect, you know, threaten to affect everything else. And so I think even though we think of hair in some ways as being um, just about appearance, it's bigger than that. It's the comments that one would get at work from higher ups about if that if they're beautiful today or, oh, I like what you've done with your hair in ways that other people may never get those comments, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that it is important for us to recognize that we are going to need support. And sometimes the support might be about supporting others because that not everybody grew up in an unhealthy environment of hearing these double messages. Some people were insulated with, with the esteem that they're going to need so that once they transition out of supportive spaces, that they're not going to have such a big adjustment. And that those folks are really you know, positioned to um, offer support to other people but for, I think, a large majority of us, it is going to be a bigger transition. And it is a mental one because it's the comments um, that that only reflect what's being read. People don't say, oh, I see your hair this way. I think this means this about you. They'll just respond based on those assumptions. Mm-hmm. And so without recognizing that all of that can be very much a part of the process, um, we, we put ourselves at risk. Mm-hmm. Of mental health, because mental health is like looking at depression, looking at anxiety. Am I hyper vigilant to what people are thinking? Are they able to pay attention to the content that is coming out of me, even if it's packaged differently? Mm-hmm. And so that's something that research has even shown that people who have straight hair are responded to very differently than people who don't. Mm-hmm. And so uh, those of us who have more tighter curls are cognizant of that. So there is a hypervigilance. There is a connection to um, our our work performance if we don't unpack that and seek support around that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, hair... I mean, and we're just talking about hair. People can may think, you know, why is it so important to talk about hair? But when it comes to black hair, it is. It has been so much controversy around black hair to the point where our children are being impacted by this in, in, in the United States. So recently, many states have signed a new bill, right, that bans discrimination due to hair. So across the country, children of color were being targeted and discriminated against because of their natural hairstyles. Mm-hmm. DeAndre Arnold was a student that recently received a lot of uh, press because he was told he could not graduate due to his locks, right? His locks that were very long. He's been growing for a very long time, right? Mm-hmm. And so the bill was designed to protect children of color, but only four states actually signed it so far. So we have California, New York, New Jersey, and Virginia that have signed this this bill. And so I uh, posted some commentary about this bill on social media, right? And I received a comment from someone um, who was very sort of torn, right? So some people, you know, are celebrating that, you know, these four states, this is a win for Black people while others are upset and feel it should not be something that we celebrate because it is it is um, a morality issue, right? Mm. That that people should not be discriminating against children or anyone anyway based on their hair. And, you know, we shouldn't even have to write a bill that says you cannot discriminate, right? Mm-hmm. What are your views on this this issue? I think the bills are a step in the right direction, but there's so many other steps that have to be taken. So if the bill is happening at a state level, what about the more um, citywide levels that are actually enforcing these policies? Unless there is an examination of the policies that discriminate within these states and other states that hopefully will follow to really repeal how the practices are being rolled out in ways that negatively even impact our children, then we're still going to be in the same boat, right? And I think that in the same way that historically some people 
value the conformity. Other people said, no, let's just tie it up and we can still do your hair however we're going to do your hair. I think that is also true currently. Everybody isn't going to be on board. Yes, arguing humanity is who we are. So why must we always conform and contort to make other people comfortable? I think that is a valid concern. I think that's that's more germane to how I feel. But at the same time, I recognize that there is a silent voice that says, what's the problem? Why can't you just keep your hair? Why must you have locks? There's a whole um, movement of lock shaming, right? right. People have who have locks, their hair is dirty. They don't wash their hair. I've had people tell me, well, I could never get locks because, you know, I, I want to comb my hair. Like, as if there's nothing, there's there's some substandard or subpar um, perception of my own hair. So I think that I what this will do is blow the wig off of some things, <laughs> pun mm-hmm. intended, right? right? So um, we can start really having some honest, conversations. I think this will challenge people to own up to their ideology around certain things. And this is actually going to be extremely troubling because a lot of people haven't said anything. And then you'll start hearing conversations that are extremely problematic that lets us know we're not as far as we think we are. Mm -hmm. I think some of these states um, have had folks who push the envelope in many different ways. And I think signing things into law is a step in the right direction when every law, right, within the context of the U.S. has been created to exclude and to other and to marginalize entire groups of people, especially those who have tighter curls. And so it's important for us to recognize that. And I think that these conversations being brought to bear are going to really cause us to look at those. So I'm excited about the, 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 um, advancements that it positions us to, but then I'm also challenged by the fact that only four out of 50, right, have even started to um, mobilize in ways that impact the law. And I also find it troubling that the outcome of this slow movement is impacting our children negatively. So even within a context that's more supportive, that's valuing all aspects of who we are, we still have to um, provide extra safeguards in a context that tells them that they're other, right? Now they're not getting it from home. They're getting it from policies and practices. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's it's also something that we have to consider and provide um, supports around because if if it impacts our mental health, right? Thinking about employment and esteem, think about our children who are still developing Mm -hmm. and we have to protect them and really push for um, our society to be more equitable. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is we have to also combat the society to, and and trying to get our children to love who they are and love love their own hair because in my my journey in raising a little girl who um because of my hair journey I knew how important it was for her to keep her natural hair and to love and embrace her natural hair. And it was a journey because she was in dance and she was in dance with a, mm-hmm. a lot of kids. The majority of the children were white girls and they would say things like, you know, put your hair in a bun or put your hair in a ponytail. And she has these tight curls that's very mm-hmm. thick and putting it in one ponytail is just not going to happen. Trying to put it in a bun is just not really going to happen. Um, and, you know, I found creative ways to get it up there because we, we can do that. Um, but she wanted her hair straight. And so mm-hmm. now I'm arguing with this little girl and I'm talking to her and I'm trying to get her to love who she is and let her know that she does not have to have straight hair in order to love who she is. That's right. Um, and it was a process. It was a process for her being really sad, really wanting her hair, crying to get her hair pressed, um, me giving in and having someone burn her hair. And then me saying, no, it's never going to happen again. I mean, it was a long process to the point now where I have a teenager who can tell you everything about her own hair, mm-hmm. what coil pattern is, what 
products work well on it, comes out the room and you're like, oh my gosh, your hair is amazing, right? Um, so now she's this person that really loves her hair and love who she is. And that was literally a journey over 16 yes, years <laughs> there. And I wish that my mom had um, really pushed against me more um, because maybe not even um, treating my hair chemically would have prolonged the hair loss because, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it was hereditary, but I know the chemicals shortened the shortened That's my right. Time, right. And so, you know, it, it's just a process. It's a process with our girls. It's a process with the institutions. It's a process with the schools that they go yes, to ma'am. and the activities that they do. Um, I remember someone telling me that they had this camp for uh, Black kids to learn how to, to swim. And they didn't have Black um, faculty or anyone that was on this um this, this board of this camp or this mm-hmm. grant for this camp. And so they didn't understand why the black girls would not swim. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so they had to have a black woman came one day and said, they're not swimming because of their hair. And no one has realized that all these years that you guys been doing this camp, that the black girls are not swimming because of their hair. Mm-hmm. They do not want to get their hair wet. They do not want to mess their hair up. They do not want to wear swim caps because they feel like swim caps um, do not fit all of their hair or all of their hairstyles. Um, and so people don't really understand the connection between Black women and hair. Um, right. and, and it's a very deep, strong, um, personal, very personal, intimate connection. Um, and people sometimes want to just walk up to us and touch our hair. Oh, my goodness. like we're a <laughs> You know, rub our hair like we're a dog. Um, you know, they, they give compliments, but even the compliments that they give on our hair for me is awkward, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I'm like, you know, you, I don't, I don't know. It's just when they say it, it's just an awkward comment. It's, it's not very comfortable to even receive that comment for me from someone other than um, a Black person because mm-hmm. I feel like they don't really don't really understand when they're giving that compliment. And I know they're trying to be nice. And, you know, of course you're very cordial and say, thank you, but it's just an uncomfortable exchange, right? Unless it's a friend that you really, you know, you really know, right? And they know, you know, your hair and your hair journey and stuff like that. But um, it's just, it's just different. It's awkward, right? Um, because it's so intimate to us. Mm-hmm. And, and we're always, and sometimes I, I'm waiting for someone to touch it, right? Because, that's the next thing after the compliment is the touch. Listen, I think this notion is it's so hard because I think this this topic has so many, so many, <laughs> so, so many, many layers. Yes. Melissa Harris Perry said there is no there's no follicle that's more political than what comes out of a black woman's head. And I think that on so many different levels, when I was transitioning, I worked at a high school where I was um, in my last year, the only black woman out of a faculty and staff of 236. So it was a weird place for me to transition. <laughs> and where, and, and there were, remember, there were times where I had to either go make my hair look all curly or all straight. And one time in an effort to make it all curly, I had Bantu knots, right? So they're knots all over my head. It took a lot of work. I had to go and get someone to do it for me. And I was really pride, proud about it. I had a, a, a white colleague come and touch my hair. I was like, what is this, an alien? Like, and, and at that moment, because sometimes people don't even ask you, can I touch it? They just do it. Mm-hmm. And if it's a day that you didn't come thinking about how you're going to address every microaggression, you're like, first of all, did that just happen? Right. Second of all, how am I about to address this? And in a way that's not going to make it worse for me, right. but get the point across. And so I just had to address that moment with a look that was like, in no uncertain terms, you need to stop touching me. Right. And I think that it's intrusive because it, and you can see that intentionality has nothing to do with it. If she was trying to say, oh, you're so creative. I didn't know you could do all these different things, but she just responded by touching it and making this backhanded comment. Um, that just, it's so layered. It's so layered. And we always have to address it in so many different ways. Then there's this whole notion of, as you brought up with your journey of then making sure that your daughter mm-hmm. appreciates and esteems her. I'm starting my journey, right? My daughter's about to be two and she has about 
three curl patterns in her head, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is a whole nother thing. And as I do her hair, I'm very cognizant about, I don't want to pull it in a way that makes her hate her hair. I I need to make sure that I'm, you know, styling it in a way that allows her the liberty of childhood. So when she gets in the water, I'm not all overly stressed or I don't make her overly stressed. Um, But there's so many things like the messages that even black moms get about their kids hair, right? So if it's a day, I had to learn how to um, corn roll. And I'm not as good as so many other people who grew up doing it. Um, But it's something that I have to work through in a way that I don't transfer onto her, right? Like I'm trying to, I know the concept of it. Some days are better than others, but when I get it and it's not as, tight and it frizzes up after a day or two, then people make comments to me about how my daughter's hair looks. Mm. And so that's a whole other issue around parenting. And you mentioned, you know, there's so many things regarding hair loss and you mentioned alopecia, but sometimes there are hormonal issues. There Mm. are hereditary issues. When um, When I got pregnant, I had no idea that one of the beautiful side effects of pregnancy could be loss of your edges. Mm-hmm. And so when my sister was, um, who's a natural hairstylist licensed in North Carolina, as she began to tell me about how my hair was thinning on the side, I was like, what's the problem? I've not done anything. She's like, oh, honey, that's pregnancy. What? So mm-hmm. not even being natural, so to speak, is going to even, or, or not chemically processed, that's not even going to protect you. But then there are other things that I have to work through. Okay, now i got these locks, but two of them are about to fall right on out because they're thin. So what do I do with that? And so really always a journey, always learning and relearning and unlearning because my mother, her hair is naturally fine. And as she ages, one of the um, things that she's noticing is that her hair is coming out. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very thin at the top. And my mother locked her hair before I did. And at a certain point, she had to cut her locks because they were pulling at her hair too much. And it was already starting to thin, which is a hereditary thing, hereditary thing for us. And so as we go through our processes, I think that we're always evaluating how we feel, but it's equally important to evaluate how we make others feel. And mm-hmm. so I really appreciate you sharing your, your story around, you know, your own hair loss, mm-hmm. because sometimes we equate uh, straight hair with conformity. Mm-hmm. And I've had to critique my own self. Like, wait a minute, you don't know their story. You don't know that that means that they don't value. You don't know what they've been through. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean when my sister has um, straight hair or she's rocking you know, a weave style or wig style or whatever. How do I feel about myself? How am I making her feel? What things do I need to unlearn if I've taught myself that natural hair is true black hair? And then how am I judging other black women? And so there's another um, layer of community that I'm finding that we also need to sort through. We do. As a black culture, because- That's right. We have the teasing and the bullying around um, hair loss. They, mm-hmm. they talk about people who have lost their edges. They talked about, they talk about a lot of different things that which they don't understand that these are hereditary um, things that happen to people that they have no control over. It's That's not right. like they've um, gelled their hair for so long and they pull their own edges out. You know, you don't know what's going on. You don't know why people are wearing wigs. You don't know why people are wearing wigs. Um, but they're, they could be, ha- they could have cancer too, right? That's because right. Now, Wigs are tied to cancer and younger and younger people are getting cancer, right? That's we right. don't know people's whole journeys, but as I think that as a black community, sometimes there's a lot of judging about people's hairstyles and a lot of teasing when they really don't know the, right. the story behind it. And it is a story behind it. Everyone it has is. their reasons, right? That's right. And my sister even showed me as she was going through uh, to get her license for, for natural hair that, you know, majority culture isn't telling the whole story. There are so many white women who wear weaves, who wear wigs, but ironically, the weaves and the wigs are in line with their hair texture. Mm-hmm. Right. And so sometimes, well, I can never tell, but my sister can look at somebody who's like, oh, she wearing a weave, girl. Look at that piece. I'm like, wait, what? And so for years and years and years and years, I've only believed that white people never have to wear wigs or they never have to wear 
weaves. And so, and the industry has not been transparent. People wear wigs and weaves for protection of their own hair, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to keep heating it and, and styling it and doing all these things that could stress my hair. So I'm just going to wear this wig for this part in this movie, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that but without that transparency, we've interpreted it a different way. And so when we deal with those things, we don't we have to sort through those things, right? Yeah. Sort through our feelings and perceptions of others in ways that had the industry even been honest to begin with. Right. That, you know, I'm not the only one who whose edges have thinned when they got pregnant. This happens in mass to many right. women. Mm-hmm. And so um just being honest and pushing back against the industry may even push back to create wigs that are more in line with our hair uh, curl patterns as varied as they are mm-hmm. and and even making sure that we have options and things of that nature. So there's so many layers to it. And I mm-hmm. think that one other thing that I want to say in terms of us teaching um, people society societally, it comes through what we see images through the media, but it also comes through education. Mm-hmm. And so when we're teaching in health classes about personal hygiene and things of that nature, how about teach about variety, variation? Mm-hmm. Um, it may seem like, you know, hair isn't so much as important to what's in the curriculum, but it's, it, in fact, it impacts everything. Mm-hmm. So why not talk about hair so that people can begin to be intentional? about understanding standards of beauty because everybody that we talk about anonymically, we're putting a face to it. What does the hair look like when mm-hmm. we show those images? Mm-hmm. And so those are things that we don't think about, but those are implicit messages. If every um, anatomy that we see comes with straight hair, that's implicit to normal development is straight hair. Yeah. And so unless we start redoing that in the curriculum and we can do it in higher ed, we can make it transparent that this is an issue. So the incoming workforce of teachers start addressing it. Right. right. And okay. so all of those things are very connected, always connected to the next generation of employers. Because these are the folks that are going to be going into the workforce in different statuses. And so if employers in the next generation learn that there are variations, then maybe their marketing techniques will speak to it. Yes. And what we do in schools is a large, has a large connection to what we're experiencing now if our children will experience these same things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing your insight. Um, and th- this, th- this was just a great uh, discussion of all the many different facets of, of hair and Black women hair. And I know we didn't cover everything and it's probably <laughs> much more, um, but we scratched the surface to start, start having the conversation. Absolutely. So I want to end with this quote. Beauty is not in the face. Beauty is in the light, in the heart. It's by Colleen DeBrand. And so this is Making It Plain with Dr. Key. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dr. Tarver, for joining us. Absolutely. Please follow us on Instagram to stay up to date on our show. Just search for Making It Plain with Dr. Key. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Making It Plain with your host, Dr. Key. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Sparkman Key Consulting, LLC. Check us out at www.thedrkey.com.